All right, if you have your Bibles, continuing our walk through the book of Judges and Ruth. We finished up Judges a couple of weeks ago, uh, took a break in Matthew last week, and then we will begin to walk through the book of Ruth this morning. Again, my name is JD. I am one of the pastors here. I'm so thankful that you are here with us uh, this morning. Again, if you don't have a Bible of your own, feel free to grab one that is underneath your seat in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that with you. That is a gift from us to you. I have a, a pastor friend who a few years ago was diagnosed with cancer. And as he, as he was uh, basically on social media giving us his update and telling us what what the doctors had found and what the next steps were, kind of laying out all the things that would be happening over the next uh, several months. Um, he ended his post by saying this, My God is faithful. He can be trusted. My God is faithful. He can be trusted. And every time that he had a chemo treatment or every time that he had a struggle uh, with going through what he was going through, uh, with chemo and radiation, he would give periodic updates. And every time that he updated us through social media, those who were following, he would always say, my God is faithful. He can be trusted. He was, in so doing, reminding himself and, he, and others who followed him that no matter the circumstances before him, no matter if if his life ended with cancer or he, was, or he came out in remission of cancer, that he trusts God no matter what happens. There is a resolve to that. There is a conviction to trusting God that he is faithful and can be trusted. You see, it's, it's fairly easy for us to trust God when things are going well. I mean, even, even Satan knows this as we learn from his interactions with God and with Job with God when it comes to Job chapter one. Like he said, the only reason Job follows you is because you've blessed him in so many ways. So we're we're fairly fairly easy to trust him when there's no difficulty involved. But the difficulty in trusting the faithfulness of God comes when we are faced with trials and tribulations. And as these trials have their full effect, they cause us to question God's goodness and kindness to us as we begin to doubt that God is really for us and not against us. And this will be a theme as we see today, as we begin to walk through the book of Ruth, that uh, there is circumstances and trials that will come that leave doubt and bitterness and pain and heartbreak. Yet God is doing something. So as we come out of Judges into Ruth, I want to kind of set us on a trajectory. So Judges highlights the downward spiral of, spiral of sin and spiritual decline of the Israelites. It was an extremely dark period of, uh, of time for the people who have lost their way. The theme is highlighted several times in Judges by the statement, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In fact, this is how the book of Judges just ends. There was no king in Israel, and the people did right in their own eyes. And that's where we're left. Then we get into the book of Ruth. 
So as we read and we study together, there are times when we are left wondering if God has forsaken His people, if He has left His people. That He has left them to their own devices forever. But what we learn from the book of Ruth as we begin chapter 1 is that God was then and is today being faithful to keep His covenant promises to us. That God is faithful to keep His covenant promises to us. Matter of fact, that is the whole intent of Judges and Ruth. is to remind us that in the, midst of our, in the midst of our sinful idolatry, that we are called to trust God's covenant faithfulness for eternal redemption for all of life. Right? That we trust God's faithfulness even in the midst of our own sinful idolatry. So let's read together Ruth 1. We'll walk through this passage together. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Limelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion uh, Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law. She returned from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her, with her two daughters, two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way and returned and to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has, come, has gone against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts from me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the, woman said, and the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly, very bitterly with me. And I went away, and the Lord has brought me back empty. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, 
and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let me pray for us this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, this is your word. Lord, I pray that your spirit would uh, speak through me. Lord, I pray that the spirit would work in this place to speak to us today um, through your word, that it, our ears would be open to hear and receive what it is that you have to teach us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, basically three distinct scenes are happening here, three distinct scenes. One, the first scene is that uh, the sojourn, we see the sojourn of Elimelech and Naomi. We see the sojourn of Elimelech and Naomi. Uh, the second scene that we see is that of Naomi and her daughters-in-law, basically a conversation between Naomi and her daughters-in-law. And then the third scene, we'll see Naomi and Ruth return back to Bethlehem. So a sojourn away from Bethlehem, conversation uh, between uh, Naomi and her daughters-in-law, and then a, basically a return back into, back into Bethlehem. That's the three scenes that we have here. So I'm going to walk through each scene, and I'm going to give us kind of three takeaways, a takeaway from, from each scene that we can kind of glean from this text today. Um, so as you start off, you realize that Ruth, the book of Ruth, is happening in the days of the judges. And there is a, a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. So in the, the first sentence, we're met with, if you're, especially if you're reading this in the historical context, so if you're an actual uh, original audience reading this, you're like, wait a minute, why would, why would a man from Bethlehem, which is, actually means the place of bread, sojourn to a place called Moab, which is actually people, a people group that are enemies of God. They're actually uh, a people that came out of uh, the oldest daughter of Lot and her incest with him. That is where the Moabites originated from. They came out of incest. They're actually enemies of God. And yet he and his wife and two sons leave the place of bread to go into a, a land that is uh, uh, they come out of a land that's supposed to be flowing with milk and honey into a land that is actually enemies uh, to, God, to God. And so it's hard to even read this first sentence and not think about and read it in light of what's happening actually in what I re just read in Deuteronomy 28. Right? So it, there's a reason that in those days that judges ruled there was a famine in the land. Why do you think there was a famine in the land? Well, we read from Deuteronomy 28 that if you, if you walk in obedience with me, and if you do the things that I do, if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and do the things that I instruct you to do, there will be what? There will be blessing. However, if you don't do these things, if you don't walk in the ways of, of who I am, if you don't walk in obedience of godliness and holiness and set apart from those around you, there will be curses, right? So there would be blessings and there would be cursings. But then we get this beautiful reminder, which is why I read Deuteronomy 30, that if you actually walk in sin, that if you, if you find yourself being cursed and walking in sin, there is a way out of this. There is a way out of this for the judge. Even though there was no king in those days, even though the people were doing what was right in their own eyes, there was an answer. And that answer was the same that the answer is for us today when we walk in sin. It's repentance. 
It is a turning away from the direction that I was going that was away from God, and I turn back towards God in the direction where I head towards Him. So when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, uh, the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord God has driven you, and if you return to the Lord your God, you and your children obey His voice, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. So there was something that was happening here in the midst of Elimelech and his family. That, that, that they would leave the place that was full of milk and honey and go to a land that was actually full of the enemy, that had the enemy. And it's important that we understand that, that God wasn't desiring for His people to leave the land of famine. Why did He bring a famine in the first place? It was to bring about the redemption and the restoration of His people. It was to, to trust him, to, to, to lead it. So Elimelech, instead of like looking around at his people and, 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 and seeking their repentance and repenting himself, they go to a land that is full of people that were enemies to God. So spiritually, it is, it is like us, instead of coming to church on a Sunday, we go and hang out in the local bar. Why? Because we want to be... We want, to be, we want to be God's people, right? We want to go and, and live in the midst. We want to go make Him known in the midst of His people. And so the church becomes secondary, but I want to go hang on a bar on Sunday mornings. Well, I can tell you what happens with that. The more you get away from God's people, the more you get away from hearing His Word, and the more you spend time apart from those people, guess what eventually happens? There's a dryness. There's a pulling away. And that's, that's exactly what we are going to see uh, today. So what can we take away from this passage as we think about uh, them sojourning uh, from the scene of the sojourning of Elimelech and Naomi and even in the midst of this, the sorrow that comes along? I mean, we got a feel for Naomi here. She loses her husband, her two sons. She gains two daughter-in-laws along the way. But there is a takeaway here. And the takeaway is this. All of these will start with lack of trust. So the first one is a lack of trust in God's provision. Just a lack of trust in God's provision. You see, we must not make, as a people of God, the mistake to choose the physical over the spiritual. Our prosperity will always, almost always, be to go towards what is safe, to go towards what is comfortable, what will make us more secure, what will help us to make more money. We're always in that mindset. Safety, security, comfortableness. And we see this over and over in the Scriptures. I mean, one example is the Israelites coming, uh, coming out of Egypt in the Exodus, right? God is on a rescue mission to bring His people out of the bonds of slavery and into a promised land, this land that's flowing with milk and honey. But as the Israelites leave Egypt, something happens. They begin to complain. They desire, when things get difficult, to go back into slavery because even though they were under the rule of Pharaoh, they had all their needs were met. They had food, they had resources. Yeah, we were slaves, but yet, it's a lot better than what we got right now. There was a lack of trust in God's provision. 
We are bent towards, even in slavery, we are bent towards what is comfortable. They chose the physical over what was spiritual, over what God was doing in their own lives. And I wonder if we're guilty today to, to choose the physical, that, those things that make us comfortable over uh, even decisions that instead of making decisions over what is spiritual. One of the things I love about this book, if you, if you read it, even if you're a member here who've never read this book, I encourage you to read it. Because one of the things it tells you to do in that book is to find a church in your community and then find a house. And then live around that church. Make that church the epicenter of your life. Why is that? Because your spiritual vitality as a Christian is just as important as your, if not more important than your physical vitality. So we should make decisions. We should choose the things that, that help us to trust in God spiritually, not just the physical aspects of life. I mean, think about in the New Testament, the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and he says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus respond with? Sell all your possessions and come and follow me. And the rich young ruler, he drops everything and goes and follows Jesus, right? No, not at all. He actually leaves despondent. The Bible says because he has many possessions. See, we make decisions in this life based on the material and the worldly things instead of what is good and spiritual and right, even in our obedience. I just want to warn us here to take this in that this was actually a time of disobedience for Elimelech. And he should have called his people to repentance, that he should have stayed and chose what was spiritual. He was going into the land of the enemy and taking his family with them to sojourn there. I mean, even in our text from last week that Brian providentially preached last week reminds us not to trust in the things of this world, but to trust, uh, but to trust God who cares for his people. So we're reminded of this throughout all the Scriptures. And so our, our main takeaway this morning out of all of these things, out of all these scenes, as we think about the lack of trust in God's provision, the main takeaway for all of this is that in all of life's circumstances, that you would put your faith and trust in the providence of God. And in all of life's circumstances, no matter whether blessing or curses, trials and tribulations, or when things are going really, really well, that you would put your faith and trust in the providence of God. So as we get through in the end of uh, verse 4, Elimelech has died, but she's left with her two sons who marry Moabite women. They live there. They, so, so what was supposed to be a brief sojourn, they actually lived there for 10 years, 10 years of dryness, no spiritual vitality. And in the midst of this, Malon and Kilion died as well. So the woman is left with her two sons and her two husbands. So we get to scene number two, where Naomi and her daughter, with her, Naomi and her daughters-in-law, and this conversation that happens as she realizes that the Lord has not forsaken his, her people in Bethlehem, but has now provided them and given them food. 
So she sets out from the place there with her daughter-in-laws and went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi says to her daughters, Hey, I want you all to go back to your mom's house. Go back, go back to your mother's house so the Lord can deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. This conversation kind of goes back and forth, and eventually Orpah does go back to her, uh, to her mother. But we're told that Ruth clings to her, that she, 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 has, um, that she is loyal to her, to Ruth. But in verse 15, Naomi says, listen, look, your sister-in-law Orpah, she's gone back to her people, to her gods, return, go after her. Ruth says, don't, don't urge me to do that. Don't make me go back to, to, to those people. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. It's a beautiful picture of loyalty, but also about what God is doing here. So our takeaway from this scene is this. There's a lack of trust in God's rescuing salvation. There's a lack of real trust in Naomi for God's rescuing salvation. See, Ruth does the unthinkable here. She leaves what is safe. She leaves what is secure. Her mother's house where she could find a husband to live and restore her life, where she could follow her gods. And yet she decides to go into a new land with a new people, worshiping a new God. Like that takes faith. That is, that is what faith looks like. One commentator says this, there was nothing kosher about Ruth. She knew she would be about as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. Right? She knew what she was walking into. She was not going to be welcome. As an outsider, but especially as a Moabite widowed woman. You talk about the least of these? She was the least of these that would be coming into, uh, into Bethlehem. But yet, even in knowing this, even having this, she clung to Naomi in faith. Not only did she cling to Naomi in faith, she clung to Yahweh in faith. Ruth was taking a risk of which she could never know the outcome. But her risk was right because it wasn't based on what was safe. It wasn't based on what was secure. It wasn't based on her own, on her own creature comforts. No, it was rooted in faith and a trust, first and foremost, first and foremost for Yahweh. You see, Ruth counted the cost. She abandoned everything. She knew to journey with Naomi uh, was to serve God. She knew to travel with Naomi was not safe. But yet, we get this beautiful picture here in 16. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. That is saying, she is saying that no matter what happens in that land, no matter what happens when I get there, I'm going to serve your God and I'm going to stay there. 
and I'm going to make that place my tomb. And there will I be buried. Then she makes this statement. She says, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts from me. This was an oath. This was an oath not to, not to Naomi, but this was an oath to God. We actually see this language in two other places in the Scriptures. One is Eli when he's talking to Samuel. He makes this exact same statement. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything. We also see in Kings where Solomon is speaking to someone. And it is an oath. It is a declaration that nothing is going to separate what is happening with this oath. It is basically a declaration of salvation. It is a declaration that she has been rescued from following after and whoring after other gods to following after Yahweh and the one true God. Sinclair Ferguson says this in paraphrase to Ruth's response. He says this, listen, I have been converted. This is what Ruth is saying to Naomi. Listen, I've been converted. Stop urging me to go back. Did you hear me? I have been converted. I am following after you. Paul tells the Thessalonians, you turn to God from idols to you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And that's exactly what Ruth has done here. She has turned away from following after other gods to following the one true God. She has turned her back on worthless idols and set her heart to follow Him. Have you done this? Have you turned from your worthless idols? Have you trusted in the one true God who brings a rescuing salvation? Do you trust Him now? See, we see the contrast of Orpah, who went back to her gods, against that of Ruth, who gives us everything she has for basically the pearl of great price we see in Matthew. For salvation. For a rescuing salvation. So in the midst of an otherwise dark chapter, in the midst of this rising tension between Naomi and her daughters-in-law, she suffers loss and sorrow and suffering. In the midst of this darkness, we see this beautiful picture of Ruth's loyalty, not only to Naomi, but also to Yahweh. It stands out here. It's clear. It stands out as the, as the beautiful climax of this chapter. That God, even in the midst of all these things that are happening in the book of Judges, that God would rescue a Moabite woman, a widowed Moabite woman, and bring her into the promised land. And so we get to our third scene. So we see a, a lack of trust in God's provision. We see a lack of trust in God's rescuing salvation. Then we get to scene three where Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. We don't know what that journey looked like. We know it was about a 50-mile journey. And they come to Bethlehem. And, and, and like I don't know if any of you are from a small town. Uh, but you can imagine Naomi, who's been gone for 10 years, all of a sudden comes back into town and the whispers begin to happen. Is this, is this Naomi? How long has it been? Ten, she's looking a little older, a little more frail. Things have been happening. 
is this her? She says to them, don't call me Naomi. See, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt with me, dealt very bitterly with me. See, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. See, there's, there's something to be in, in a dry land, in a, in a land of foreign gods for ten years that will leave you empty, that will leave you dry, that will leave you spiritually destitute. She went away full. This is not talking about her physical needs here. She was spiritually full when she left. And yet comes back empty. That tells us something. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Isn't God who is doing this? By the way, the name Naomi means pleasant and sweet. But Mara means bitter. So she went from being pleasant and sweet to bitter. And I want to tell you that sorrow can do that. As we think about our last takeaway here, there's a lack of trust in God's grace in the face of difficulty. There's a lack of trust in God's grace in the face of difficulty. See, James, the half-brother of Jesus, starts off his book with, with an interesting, interesting thought, an interesting idea. He says this, He says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may grow in holiness. Find joy, or count it all joy, when you face various trials. That's interesting, right? I don't know if I've ever, in the midst of a trial, really salt joy in and of myself because there's times of difficulty. And the interesting thing is James doesn't write this to a people who are living in the comforts and safety of their houses. Matter of fact, they are dispersed. He is writing to a people who are facing immense persecution while also living in poverty. The caution for us as we let our trials overwhelm us to the point of bitterness. And James knew this. That's why he was writing to a people who were under severe persecution to count their lives as joy and not sorrow. Because he knows in the midst of difficulty and sorrow that if if we're not careful, we don't have the right theology, that our hearts will be prone to bitterness. Now, we will be like Naomi saying, no, don't call me pleasant and sweet, but call me Mara. My life is bitter. Things are hard. Life is difficult. But if we let our trials overwhelm us to the point of bitterness where we lack trust in God's provision of grace, we will err in this. You see, oftentimes, we are like Naomi. We see this view. We see the 10-foot view. We see things at a close proximity, a close space where where things are happening. And we're overwhelmed by the trials and the tribulations of life. But God is doing things on a whole other level that we are not aware of. He is working from from a level 
uh, to accomplish His will in us and for us. And because of our limited limited view, we are prone to grow discontent. We are prone to be hardened by the things of this world. If you don't believe me, just read Scripture. Over and over again, we're reminded of this. Job says, therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. I don't know about you, but when I go through trials, difficulties, and tribulations, this is is me. He goes on to say, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. That means I will complain because of the bitterness of my soul. This is our propensity to speak out and to complain to God in the bitterness of our soul for our circumstances. But we're reminded in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, that to lift our drooping hands, to strengthen our weak knees, To make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be pulled out of joint, but rather be healed. We're reminded to strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without no one will see the Lord. And also see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Why? So that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. For by it we become defiled. How do you handle your trials and tribulations? How do you handle your suffering? Do you trust in the grace and the goodness of God that no root of bitterness shall enter your your heart and your mind and your soul? I mean, many of us know what it's like to suffer. There's not one person in here that probably has not suffered. Many of us know what it's like to question the goodness of God, to trust in His providence and of grace. We question His goodness. We question His providence, especially when we're in the middle of a trial. So we need to let the story of Naomi in light of the passage from Hebrews be a warning to us. That we would seek to obtain the grace of God and not let our hearts grow weary and good. Like she, As she walks in, she comes in, she says to the people, my name is not Naomi, my name is Bitter, my name is Mara. God has brought calamity upon me. If we're not careful, we will be like Naomi. We will grow a heart of bitterness. We will look at God and we will shake our fist. You brought calamity upon me. How dare you, God? I know that some of you sitting in these rows and those of you that may be watching online or listening on the podcast... There are some of you that are going through tribulation right now. My encouragement to you is to not let your heart be troubled. But even in the midst of what you're going through, the midst of your struggle and trial, you would strengthen your weak knees. That you would lift your drooping hands. That you would trust in God for all of life's circumstances. I know what it's like to have my heart troubled. 
I know what it's like to feel some sort of bitterness towards God as a father of a special needs son. I know what it's like to look around and be frustrated by God's seeming lack of care and provision. I know what that's like. There have been times where I've questioned God, trying to figure out what he's doing in the midst of difficulty. There are times when I complain to God from the bitterness of my soul. What I have learned in going through these trials of various kinds is that each time I come out on the other side, my faith and trust in God is more strengthened, not less strengthened. That my knees have been my knees have been strengthened, my hands are not drooping at the end of it all. Scott Groves, one of our elders, shared with us yesterday an excerpt from this devotional written by Charles Spurgeon, even in the midst of his own trials. He writes this. The trials that come from God are, this is from Charles Spurgeon, by the way, not from Scott. He says this. The trials that come from God are sent to prove and strengthen our graces and immediately illustrate the power of divine grace, to test the genuineness of our virtues and to add to their energy. Our Lord in His infinite wisdom and superabundant love sets such a high value upon His people's faith that He will not protect them from those trials by which faith is strengthened. You would never have possessed the precious faith that now supports you if the trial of your faith had not put you through the fire. Now you are a tree that never would have rooted as well if the wind had not rocked you to and fro and made you take a firm hold upon the precious truths of God's gracious Man, you would never have rooted as well if the wind had not rocked you to and fro. Trials, tribulations, the things that we go through in this world are to build perseverance and endurance in Him. So what we see here in chapter 1 is the providence of God that is directing all things in the universe God is sovereignly orchestrating everything to the counsel of His own will. Here, even in Ruth chapter 1, even in the midst of sorrow and suffering, there is salvation that will lead to God's provision. Ruth 1, left by itself, leaves us questioning what God is up to. It's no accident that Naomi ends up in Moab. It's no accident that Ruth is determined to follow her back. God had better plans for Naomi and Ruth. As we read the rest of the story, we will find that God is beautifully fulfilling His covenant promise to bring about a Redeemer who will ultimately take away the sins of the world. So as the musicians come, I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the reminder of Your graciousness, Your providential care in the midst of suffering and sorrow. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us and your grace and mercy given to us, especially in the truth of the gospel. Jesus, we pray, we humbly come before you, asking that you would help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.